You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen and good morning. We're going to open our Bibles to Psalm 63 today. If you don't have a Bible, you can put your hand up and our ushers will be happy to give you one. You may keep that as our gift to you. And if you forgot your Bible at home this morning, you may also take one, but give it back at the end of the day. We will still need them. We've been going through the book of Judges this summer, but today we're going to skip ahead in the biblical narrative to the time of the kings, in particular to a psalm written by one of those kings whose name I share. God inspired and gifted the book of Psalms to his people as the hymn book of the people of God, intended to teach and model worship. We're going to look together at Psalm 63 this morning as a model prayer, so let's dive right in. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. The title of this morning's message is The Longings of a Godward soul, the longings of a Godward soul. Why that title? Look at the repeated word soul in verses one, five, and eight. In verse one, we see my soul thirsts for you. In verse five, my soul will be satisfied. And in verse eight, my soul clings to you. Psalm 63 is a psalm of pure longing, penned by David, who was in many ways a broken hero. He made his fair share of mistakes, But the legacy he leaves is overwhelmingly positive. Scripture famously describes him as a man after God's own heart. Therefore, I think it's safe to say that the perspectives and the desires we find in David's prayers are representative of the perspectives and desires of a heart shaped by God's heart. Before we dive in verse by verse, I want you to look closely at the subscript under the title. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That one line adds a massive layer of context to this psalm. Can we put up that picture? This is the wilderness of Judah. There are basically two times during David's life that this description could have been applied. 
We don't have time to examine them fully, but if you're looking for some bonus study, write down the references and read them at home. They're fascinating. Option one, 1 Samuel 23 and 24. David, with a band of 600 men, is fleeing through forests and caves from Saul, who is seeking him every day. Three times men come to Saul and betray where David is hiding. And at one point, Saul is closing in on David with 3,000 men. David is understandably desperate. Option two, 2 Samuel 15 through 17. David, again with 600 men, this time plus women and children, is running for his life from his son, Absalom, who has betrayed his trust, stolen the hearts of the people, and crowned himself king. As if this wasn't bad enough, on the way, a local scoundrel comes out of the woodwork, starts calling down curses, throwing stones, and flinging dust at the whole group. David and all the people are understandably hungry, thirsty, and weary, and probably discouraged. You could make a good case from Scripture for either of these stories being the occasion of this psalm. The important element is this. David has been unjustly betrayed. He's running for his life with a band of people through this wilderness. And this is what he prays. A psalm of spiritual longing. Isn't that remarkable? He realizes that his physical needs, pressing as they are, are secondary to his spiritual needs. He's in the physical wilderness praying about the wilderness of his soul. Listen again to the opening verse of this psalm with that context in mind. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Hundreds of men pursuing his life. My soul thirsts for you. No food or water. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you hear it differently? Does it sound like your prayers? We have this picture of David resting by still waters and green pastures surrounded by sheep. I wonder why. This dude wasn't just sitting in a field writing ditties at this point. He's running for his life. He's living a rough life. We can all resonate with trials. We experience them, some of them very deep, some of them already prayed for and mentioned this morning. But can we also resonate with this response of spiritual longing? My natural answer would be no. I'd be praying for physical water, something to eat, my enemy's plans to fail, and those wouldn't be wrong. But before doing any of these things, David first and foremost focuses on his spiritual needs. And what are those spiritual needs? Well, there's four of them in this psalm, and we're going to look at each of them in turn, examine what they meant to David, and talk about how each one applies to us. So from the man whose heart has been gripped by God's heart, we see this. When God grips my heart, first point, you can write this down if you are taking notes, I pursue his presence. Look at the first phrase. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. David wants more of God. But he already has God, right? He says, you are my God. So has, how is it that he still wants God? Is that a contradiction? No, it's not. Having the thing you love and wanting more of the thing you love are not opposites. It's actually a common experience. If you think about it, I'll give you a trivial example. Uh, Chipotle. 
I love the restaurant Chipotle. And when I moved here from Virginia, there was no local Chipotle. I wanted Chipotle. I longed for Chipotle. When they built a Chipotle in Niagara Falls, New York, I visited it frequently. And guess what? I wanted Chipotle. I longed for Chipotle. Having the thing you want and still wanting that thing are not opposites. Here's a more meaningful example. My wife Kayla and I will have been married uh, in nine days for eight years. And uh, it's pretty exciting. We're getting ready to celebrate that. But as long as we've been married, I'm not bored of her or tired with her. As much time as we've spent together, as many conversations as we've shared, there's still more to discover about her. There's still more that intrigues and interests me. The longer I've had her, the more I want her. As A.W. Tozer famously said, and this will be on screen, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. The more we discover that who God is and what God gives meets our every need, the more we come to him to have our needs met. As we sang this morning, all we want and all we need is found in you. Having God leads to wanting more of God. And what can we compare this longing to? Well, David does it for us as the verse one continues. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As we said already, David is in the wilderness. He's using the desperation of his physical hunger and thirst to describe the depth of his spiritual hunger and thirst. God, help us see our need for you. And where was this need met? Look at verse two. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What's David referring to here? Put simply, it's gathered worship. In the history of worship, we're in between the movable tabernacle in the wilderness and the fixed temple in Jerusalem. The ark of God was the central element of worship. It represented the presence of God. And you see it bouncing from place to place. It's in Bethel, it's in Shiloh, it's in Kiriath-Jerim. The Philistines snatch it and they all get boils and they have to give it back. David finally brings it to Jerusalem. He pitches a tent for it. He calls it the tent of meeting. Wherever the ark was became a holy place. And where the ark was in that tent, it symbolized the presence of the Lord. This is the meaning of the word translated sanctuary. The place of worship, the place set apart, the place of encountering the Lord. Now, David's in the wilderness. He's unable to worship in the tent of meeting where he's used to gathering. He misses the place of worship. He misses the people of God. He misses the presence of God. And he's longing for these realities again. Likewise, you and I can find ourselves in a place where the experience of God's presence can feel like a thing of the past. Maybe we've had some mountaintop worship experiences at some point in the past, but not so much recently. Maybe the sweet truths dripping from God's word have given way to dusty cobwebs as you haven't taken your Bible off the shelf in a long time. Or maybe you're watching on live stream today because you're sick and you've kept up with your private devotions, but you can't make it to church and you long to be reunited with the worshiping church. If that's you, I can tell you this morning that you were prayed for in this place this morning. And I can tell you that that is a great longing. We too long to be reunited with you. What about you who are here? Do you eagerly look forward to gathered worship? Or is your church attendance patchy? 
Is it a toss-up between weekend worship and your favorite hobby? Or do you make it a priority to be here on time, ready to engage with the Lord and his people? Examine your heart and ask yourself if you have this type of spiritual hunger and thirst for the Lord. Only this longing, when fulfilled, has the potential to light up your soul. In his presence, there is freedom, satisfaction, and the fullness of joy. Like we sang this morning, there's nothing worth more that will ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope, your presence, Lord. David understood something that we need to wrap our minds around. That is when God's people gather, God uniquely puts his power and his glory on display. Now, I don't want to overstate this by saying that the gathered church is the only place where true worship happens. We have our worship pillar, and we have our worship pillar verse, John 4, 24, where we're told that God is spirit, and those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. No longer a physical mountain, a physical temple. We worship in the place of the spirit. And we can do that anywhere. We can do that anywhere. With our small groups, by ourselves, with other believers, anytime, any place. But I don't want to understate the matter by pretending that there's no difference between personal praise and corporate worship. God reserves a special sense of his presence for gathered worship. David gets this. He says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, not the preacher or the band, not the cool light show or the fun activities happening before or after church. What happens when the people of God gather, you can't get on your living room couch by yourself. Think about it. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we come together, God in me encounters God in you. And there is a uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there is a, a revealing of the Lord's glory in a different way than when we are separate. I drove past the church this week with a sign that read, Blessing of the Animals this Sunday. I drove past another one that read, We are friendly with air conditioning. When the sideshow distractions become the main attractions, we lose the power and the purpose of our gathering. Who was at prayer and praise this past Wednesday? Okay, was the, was the presence of the Lord not among us? Did we do anything fancy or special? We prayed and we sung, and the Lord graced us with his presence. Who are we to encounter the Lord's presence? But we came together, and there was a special sense that the Lord was at work. That's what David gets. That's what David misses. The feature of our services has to be the God we worship. If God is not the focal point of our church, we're sunk. We're done. We've become a community center that's not even that trendy. We've thrown away every shred of relevance we were grasping for. People can go to Tim Hortons and find friendly people and air conditioning. And in Tim Hortons, they let you have a coffee, whereas here we make you finish it before you come in the doors. God has to be the focal point of our gatherings. Ephesians 2.22 says that the church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians 3.20 says, to him be glory in the church we understand that when God's people gather, we hear God's voice through his preached word. We sense God's presence in the sacraments of communion and baptism. 
we see God building the church through its members as each one, empowered by the Spirit, does his or her part to display God's love, compassion, wisdom, and truth. Let's be a church that pursues the manifest presence of God together. Oh God, would you pour out your Spirit upon us even now? As we sang this morning, let's become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Amen. Amen. Point one, when God grips my heart, I pursue his presence. When God grips my heart, secondly, I treasure his love. Look at verse three and four. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David recognizes God's love as being better than life itself. No other earthly pleasure can compare to knowing God and being loved by him. David knew God's love firsthand in sweet communion while he watched over sheep. He knew it in God choosing and anointing him king while he was an obscure youth, in elevating him to the king's court to play the harp for Saul. He knew with God's love and God granting him victory to overcome the lion, the bear, and the giant Goliath. The Hebrew word David uses for steadfast love is hesed, and it literally means unfailing love, devotion, or kindness, especially based on a covenant relationship. And because David treasures this love more than anything else in life, his lips will praise, he will bless, he will lift up his hands. If you're new to Harvest, you might wonder why people sing so enthusiastically, why they lift their hands during the music. Here's why. It's because we've encountered God's love and we can't help but let our excitement out over this valuable treasure. How has God shown his love in your life? Has he delivered you from the clutches of sin? Amen. Has he chosen you to see his beauty and follow him? Has he blessed you with relationships and possessions you don't deserve? Has he enabled you to face and defeat some overwhelming circumstances? Is he with you in your worst moments? Amen. He does all of these things and more. And how do we respond to the immense privilege of knowing God? Like David, do we respond with heartfelt worship? Remember Buddy the Elf? I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. I'm not saying everybody has to be over the top, energetic all the time. But when God commands us to worship him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's inviting a whole body response. David says, my lips will praise you. Do you sing in church? So I will bless you as long as I live. Have you made a lifelong commitment to worship God? In your name, I will lift up my hands. Do you physically engage when you worship? The lifting of hands isn't mandated here, but it is modeled as a natural response. So what does lifting our hands mean anyway? Well, it could be surrender as we sense God's power. It could be dependence as we acknowledge our weakness. It could be agreement as we hear his truth. It could be receiving as we ask for his provisions could be joy as we celebrate his goodness. Well, this doesn't have to be a forced response. My kids do it instinctively. When I come home from work, one or more of them will often greet me at the door with outstretched hands. They desire to be lifted up and drawn near by their father. How much more us with our heavenly father? This is why we raise our hands when we worship, 
not because we saw it on the latest Hillsong video on YouTube. The more we long for God's love, the more we experience it. The more we experience it, the more we respond to it. So when God grips my heart, I pursue his presence. I treasure his love. Thirdly, when God grips my heart, I depend on his help. Verses five through eight say this. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. What did it mean for David to depend on God's help? Well, for one, it meant remembering God's past help. And it's a curious choice of words where David does this. In his bed. Well, what's significant about that? For one, I don't think he had one. You saw the picture of the mountains where he was sleeping. This guy's running for his life. But he's not letting his external circumstances hinder his personal fellowship with God. Even in an uncomfortable place, his thoughts land on the goodness of God. And he doesn't just review past mercies, he meditates on them. The Hebrew word used for meditate means to utter a sound, to moan or mutter. The best way I could think to describe it is what you're doing when you make this sound. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a thoughtful weighing, mulling over, reviewing, processing. David is devoting the night hours to communing with God, to considering the faithfulness of God to him, and it's a deeply satisfying experience, much more than the sleep he's foregoing. Do you regularly remember God's past help in your life? One simple way to do this is to keep a diary or journal of answered prayers and go over them, especially in the tough times. Remembering God's past help regularly develops your gratefulness, strengthens your faith, and prepares you for future trials. Next time you can't sleep at night, let the goodness of the Lord flood your thoughts and fill you with a deep, abiding joy. David describes the satisfaction of that joy as with fat and rich food. Now, in our culture, we cut off the fat, but in his day, that was a way of saying the best of the best. Like your belly is stuffed after eating at the Mandarin buffet, so is your soul stuffed when you recount God's many provisions and deliverances. Remembering God's goodness allows you to have a spiritual feast in life's deserts. David remembers God's past help, and he sings. I find this expression interesting. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. We find that phrase peppered throughout the Psalms. How many here are hunters? Okay, two or three of you. How many here grew up on a farm? Okay, a few more of you. Unless that's you, you probably don't have the context to fully appreciate this analogy. See, I always thought of the shadow of your wings like a mother hen with her baby chicks, compassionately caring for them, which is true, but it's not the full picture. See, I was recently exposed to the fuller sense of this concept while jogging. I like to run, and I was on an early morning route that took me near Queenston Heights. I was running on the side of the road when, when I came up on a turkey in the grass. Something near its foot caught my eye, 
and I realized there was a baby hiding under its mother's feathers. So I did what any of you would do. I got out my phone, and I got closer to take a picture. And I was coaxing the little baby to come out, calling it, come near me. And uh, it did scurry out from under its mother's protection and came towards me. I took a step closer, and you know what happened? <laughs> the mother charged me. <laughs> and it was in that moment of panicked retreat that I understood the scope of this word picture. Under the shadow of God's wing speaks of his care, yes. It speaks of his compassion, yes. But in that moment, I also understood and saw the fierce combat of a protective parent. Don't think mother hen, think mother bear. No matter what your external circumstances are, you can locate yourself in the shadow of your protector's wings and sing for joy. He will guard you with his tender care and with his defensive action. Oh, how we can trust our God. Depending on God's help also means clinging to the hand of present help. David realizes that it's only because of God's sustaining hand that he is upheld. He's begging God not to let him go. Do you realize that you are only where you are today because of God's preserving grace? Left to ourselves, we would falter. We would fail. We would make shipwreck of our faith like so many high-profile leaders we have watched do over just this summer alone. We often say at our office that we're one step away from stupid. Our willpower can't sustain our pursuit of God or keep us out of temptation. Only God's sustaining hand can bring us safely home. David remembers God's past help and he sings. He realizes God's present help and he clings. And as we move from past help through present help, faith leads us to future help, which we now turn to in the last three verses, which at first glance seem out of place. As I was studying for this message I came on the last three verses and thought, what are we going to do with these? How do these fit in to the rest of the psalm? Verses 9 to 11, look at them here. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You would laugh if we sang this in one of our worship songs today. Can you imagine it? My foes are many. They rise against me. They will be lunch for beasts. <laughs> you laugh. We wouldn't sing that in a song, but yet here we find it in a song. It's in the psalm, which is in the hymn book of God's people. So how do we process these verses? What are we to learn from them? If you come across a passage like this in your devotions, ask, okay, let's step back. David was writing in a particular situation. What's the concept represented by these particulars? Here's what it is. An eager expectation for God's justice. So when God grips our heart, we pursue his presence. We treasure his love. We depend on his help. And fourthly, when God grips my heart, I anticipate his justice. See, when God made you in his image, he created you with a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong, and a righteous anger when evil is allowed to have the upper hand. Obviously, David has enemies, as we see here. Notice what he's not doing in these verses. 
He's not taking vengeance into his own hands. He's not taking pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not harboring hatred. However, he is expressing confidence in God's righteousness, faith in God's power, and trust in God's sovereign oversight. He's banking on God's claim that vengeance belongs to him, which appears in both the Old and the New Testaments. The Avengers might be a popular movie franchise, but only God can properly claim that title. He's the original Avenger. Because of God's initiative, we don't have to take revenge into our own hands. Proverbs 20 verse 22 instructs us, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. So who or what are our enemies today? Well, they might be sins inside of us, temptations. They might be people outside of us, persecutions. Or they might be spiritual forces around us, oppressions. We are living in a spiritual battle for our soul, and it is absolutely right to want God to bring about the ultimate victory. Where else do you take the hurt and the pain of this broken world than to a perfect judge who will one day right every wrong? We often point to Jesus' command to pray for our enemies, which we should. But we stop there forgetting that the same Jesus who hung on a cross praying for his enemies rides in again on a horse slaying his enemies. This is the God we worship. The book of Revelation shows again and again the saints in heaven having been perfected, praising God for executing true and righteous judgments. This confidence helps us to endure wrongdoing that may come our way. We still pray for our enemies, trusting that God desires everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth and turn from their sins. David played this out. He didn't take revenge against Saul or Absalom. He trusted that to the Lord. He didn't even take revenge against the guy who was throwing rocks and dust at him. He entrusted that to the Lord. The scripture teaches that there will be some, even as we're praying for our enemies, who stubbornly resist the Lord who, and who will spend eternity apart from him as a result. God's justice isn't mean or heartless. It is right for him to defend his honor. And it's right for us to want him to do so. A heart gripped by God longs for the atrocities of God-haters to be brought to justice. The passage continues, The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Not only does King David rejoice, but all those who swear by him. Who is him referring to? Well, it could be David, as in those who have sworn allegiance to the king. It could be God. Deuteronomy describes the people of the Lord as those who swear by the name of the Lord. Either way, seeing God prove himself right and silence every opposing voice is reason for great joy when God delivers his servants. We pray in this lifetime, but we're guaranteed ultimately on the day of judgment. Listen too to the contrast between the enemies and the king. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. The king shall rejoice in God. It's pretty black and white. Two options here. Church, can I remind you today that eternity is black and white? We will all stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. How we fare in that judgment determines how we will spend eternity. With God in joyful relationship or apart from God in terrible anguish. Here's the terrifying realization. 
If you and I are honest with ourselves, we want God's justice more for other people than we do for us. The terrifying part about God's judgment is that you and I deserve it. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to measure up to his standards of perfection. We've all dishonored God with our actions, and we've all rebelled against his commands. That's the terrifying realization. But here's the beautiful realization. Where do the presence, the help, the justice, and the love of God come together? One person, Jesus Christ. As we're longing for these things, we see that they have their fulfillment, and that has been provided for us. So church, a heart gripped by God, pursues God's presence, treasures God's love, depends on God's help, anticipates God's judgment. Ultimately, when God grips my heart, I crave Jesus more than anything else. See, David wrote of the unfailing love of the Lord, but he didn't know the half of what we know today. What he previewed by faith, we review in faith. The Bible teaches that hundreds of years after David, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The presence of God took human form in Jesus. He was fully God and fully man, able to live a perfect life on our behalf and die the death we deserved. Scripture says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God and under his wrath, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to show us his help to redeem us from the rightful wages of our sin. And because God is a good judge, he doesn't just sweep our wrongdoing under the rug. His justice demands repayment. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. When God raised him from the dead three days later, it proved that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice, granting those who trust in Christ a permanent place in the family of God. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel. That's the hope of our faith. That is the central truth that we gather around this morning. If you don't know Christ today, the Bible is clear. Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks. Will you surrender your life to him? Turn away from evil and put your faith in him? Will you receive the free gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life awaiting those who love him and long for his return? If God is drawing you today, don't delay. There will be leaders up front after the service to help you walk through any questions you might have and pray with you. Responding to Jesus is the most important decision of your life. May you through faith be able to say with David, God, you are my God, which we are able to say through repentance and faith. If you're here this morning and you already know Christ, I pray that you would let him stir up a longing in you to pursue his presence, to treasure his love, to depend on his help, and to anticipate his justice. When God grips our heart, we recognize Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of every one of these longings. He's the bread of life. He's the spring of living water, meeting every spiritual hunger and thirst. And this isn't a one-time deal. It's a recurring pattern of life. Let every fresh season or new difficulty drive you to him in desperate desire. I got a little book this spring. It's called The Loveliness of Christ. And it's filled with quotations from a man who lived in the 1600s named Samuel Rutherford. And he says this, I think I see more of Christ than I ever saw. And yet I see but little 
of what may be seen. I think I see more of Christ than I ever saw, and yet I see but little of what may be seen. Church, having Christ and wanting Christ, knowing Christ and longing to know Christ are not opposites. May an all-consuming longing for Christ be the heartbeat of our church as we pursue him with everything we have. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for showing us that you are what we really need. Apart from you, we have nothing, can do nothing. We're blind, poor, and wretched. We see that. Help us to see it more. Help us to long not just for the healing and wholeness you offer, but for you, Jesus, the great physician of our weary souls. And when this life brings trials and pain, may we turn to you in faith, trusting that your grace is sufficient for us, that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Use our physical circumstances to open our eyes to our desperate spiritual need for you and your overflowing provision for each and every one of those needs in Christ Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the bread of life. Thank you for the fountain of living water. May we hold fast to you in faith this morning. Amen.